Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. In these two weeks that bridge the new year, we're wrestling with the idea that if we want to improve our life, if we want to improve our relationships, if we want to improve our relationship with God, the best option in front of us may not, in fact, be adding something to our lives. The best way forward may be to quit something, quit a behavior, an attitude that's been counterproductive, that's damaging to our well-being and our relationship with God. And this morning, I want us to think about, as Scott said, this whole idea of I quit comparing. It's important for us to understand as we dive into this that comparison is neither good nor bad in itself. In fact, healthy comparison helps us make wise decisions. But we also know there's a dark side to it, don't we? We've been there. Much of our unhappiness in life comes from unhealthy comparison. When I begin to compare my life to yours, my family to yours, my children to yours, my job, my success, even my vacations to yours. And before we realize it, we can be caught in a comparison trap. Far too often for us, Unhealthy comparison is the gateway to jealousy and envy. And if it lingers too long in our hearts, it can create this bitter spirit within us where we start asking questions like, why should you have that when I can't? Unchecked comparisons, they're unhealthy, will rob us of our joy. They'll kill the peace that is in our heart. And it can make us arrogant when we succeed and depressed when we don't. The consequences of that kind of comparison may take time to show themselves, but they will come if we linger there. Solomon described that comparison this way. He said, a heart that's at peace will give life to the body, but envy, it just rots our bones. So the struggle with comparison is as old as humanity We can find it wreaking havoc in lives all the way back at the beginning of creation with Adam and Eve's two sons, Cain and Abel. If you read the story, what happens is Cain begins getting jealous of his brother. He's comparing the sacrifices he's bringing to God with the ones his brother is bringing to God. And this jealousy builds in his heart. And eventually it leads him to anger at his brother and to murdering his brother. Move forward in Genesis and you encounter another pair of brothers. They were actually twins, Jacob and Esau, and they couldn't escape comparisons. There's part of this that's really tragic and part that's pretty funny to me too. But they, they were compared in the Bible this way in the text of the Bible. As they grew, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Isn't a great title for a guy? What do you do for a living? I'm just a man of the open country. It's another way to say you're unemployed Um, or a guide. So Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Jacob, Bible says, Jacob was content to stay at home among his tents. Really? What you want to be, guys? I mean, just think about it. Guys in the room, would you rather be a man of the open country or a guy who just kind of hangs out in his tent? It sounds a little creepy, doesn't it? So... 
it, it didn't get helped by their parents. Isaac and Rebekah were the parents, and they were far from perfect with these two boys. But the Bible is really clear that each of them had a favorite and made it known. The father loved Esau because he was a man of the open country. The mother loved Jacob because he hung around and was present more than Esau. I mean, now, I mean, if we're honest, every one of us as parents has this one child we like better. We just don't tell them. I mean, this is just very obvious in them. Don't act like you don't. Um, This is a grade A dysfunctional family. Their preferences were right out there for everyone to see. Move forward, you find in 1 Samuel 18, Saul and David. Saul was the first king of Israel, and he became jealous of David when David's reputation as a war hero and his celebrations over the number of people he had conquered grew greater than Saul's. He became so jealous, he tried to kill David. It killed the relationship that he had with David, and eventually it drove Saul mad. Roll forward to the New Testament, not because we've exhausted all the examples in the Old. We'd be here for a week talking about all the envy and jealousy that spring from comparison that's in the Old Testament. But move forward, just to get a glimpse, it's still there when we get to the New Testament. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. And he had a very clear mission from God. Before he was born, an angel revealed to his parents, he would be the one to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. To teach people, to get them ready to listen to and accept Jesus. He was fine with that. He understood his role. He was happy in the role that he was given by God. He and Jesus didn't have any issues, but their followers did. I don't know if you've ever read over this, just skim past it, but in John chapter 3, John's disciples come to him. And they go, um, so Rabbi, you, you remember that guy that you introduced us to on the other side of the Jordan River? You remember the guy that you baptized? Well, he's also baptizing now. And here's the crux of their comparison. They said, and everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. Like they weren't into opening franchises for faith. They said, this is it. John's the dude. We're with him. Why are they going over there? There was this huge comparison, jealousy, envy. We can even see the the damage done by comparison within Jesus' closest followers, the 12 disciples. If you read the Gospels closely, there was a little bit of a competition between John and Peter. Now, John didn't help things because when he wrote his, uh, his gospel, John referred to himself repeatedly as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, it's great, Peter, that you planted the church. It's great that you have this leading role in things, but you just need to remember, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And if he was willing to put it in print, you can bet that he talked about it, and it created tension. There was this competition that was going on between the two of them. One day after Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, walking in the sandy shores, and just talking with Peter about what his life would be like, the impact he was going to have for the kingdom. And then he also told him about how he was going to suffer and he was going to die a really painful death. They get to the hardest part of the conversation, and Peter realizes there's footsteps behind them. John is following along. 
He's dipping into this private conversation with Peter. It's just the three of them there, and John's not welcome. Peter hears this, and he goes, okay, all right, so am I being singled out to suffer? I'm the only one? What about him, that disciple you love? That was the tone of Peter's questions. They were comparing, contrasting. That comparison game is as old as as humanity, and it's still going on. So just for a reality check this morning, I'm going to ask you a question. When you answer, I want you to raise your hand high. Raise it proud. If you have ever compared your possessions, your appearance, your performance, or your circumstances to someone else. Anybody done that? Yeah. I think we've all been caught in the comparison trap. Here's the better question, I think. I get a little real honest answer from you. As I was talking through those five vignettes of Scripture, and you listened to their stories and how they compared and what happened in their life, Raise your hand if inside, somewhere deep inside of you went, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. (laughs) Right? Yeah, there's a few honest hands around the room. Fortunately, uh, there is a good side to comparison. It helps us make healthy decisions. But unhealthy, you can trace it all through Scripture. You can trace it through your life. It causes envy and jealousy, which are so toxic for our souls. So how do we manage this tension? How do we do healthy comparison without diving into the unhealthy that just is toxic for our heart? Fortunately, in the the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, there's these three verses in chapter 4 that gives us some wise counsel when we find ourselves headed toward or caught up in unhealthy comparison. I'm hoping his words and the word picture he uses will be burned into our hearts and memories so that we'll think of it the next time we're tempted to compare. Solomon says this, and I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, Solomon is exaggerating for effect here. When he says all toil, all achievement, it's not literally all, but a great deal of it springs from envy. He's making the point that when envy becomes the boss of us, it becomes difficult to enjoy even the simplest of our accomplishments. We're always pressing for more, trying to catch up, trying to be like someone else, comparing ourselves to them. Um, As I was thinking about this week, this idea of comparing, I wondered, like, what was the earliest memory that I had of comparison? And it goes, it took me right back to fourth grade. Uh, That was when they instituted a national testing standard uh, that not every school adopted, but ours did. Uh, It was called the Iowa Basic Skills Test. Anybody remember those? Yeah, there's a lot of pain in this room. Yeah, so I was shocked. I Googled it this week. I was shocked to find out it's still going by basically the same name and still being used in school systems today. Now, they've changed it. They've obviously dumbed it down, you know, for this generation. But our generation excelled. (laughs) Sorry for that comparison. That was not healthy. Um, The goal of the test was admirable. So the goal of the test was to see if there are individual students or if there are classrooms or even whole schools that are not performing well. And so what they did was 
you know, they, they sent us in the room. It was five solid days of testing, and they tested you in math and language arts and uh, reading and science and social studies. Every day was one battery of tests. And so I was a bit intrigued in the early 70s when, this, when I saw this test, and they sent it off to be scanned by a computer, Right? And you had to make sure you did it with a number two lead pencil because that's the only one it would read. Um, so they would send it off, and then there was that tension-filled day when the teacher announced the results were in. And they would give you your test results in, you know, in an envelope with your name on it so that nobody else could see it. Um, and I always wondered when I got those tests back. We took them all the way through, you know, grade school, middle school, high school, I always wondered as they came back, how am I going to do, right? I mean, am I going to be one of those kids that's in the 90th percentile? Am I going to be, this is how I thought about it, am I going to be just average? Because that's not good enough, right? Nobody aims for mediocrity. I don't want to be just average. Or worse yet, would I be one of the kids at the bottom of the feeding pond? And then my mind went to other things like, how am I compared to the kids in Iowa where this started? And then let's be honest, do we really think it's the best choice we could make to use Iowa as our basis of comparison? <laughs> now, the entire class was anxious as we got these test results, and we started thinking about it. And my friends and I, as soon as we got them, we would compare scores with each other and see, you know, where did you rank? How did you do? And if we were in the 90th percentile, which one? Like, were you in the 99th, which meant you're way better than everybody else? You know, puffed up with pride? Or did you just barely squeak in at 90? It was just a comparison that went on with our classmates. It went on at home with my brother. My parents would save the test and compare. I was the smarter one. Um, He was athletic and I was smarter. Um, C.S. Lewis nailed this kind of thinking where our comparison is all about, did I do better than you? Here's what he said. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're really not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone instantly became equally rich or clever or good looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It's a powerful statement from C.S. Lewis. Solomon says that living this life driven by those kinds of comparisons, by driven by envy, driven by jealousy, is meaningless. He used a phrase that in his day that equated with foolishness when he says, it's like chasing the wind. You'll never catch it. It's pointless. Why would you do this? And if we do that, Solomon says, we'll never know peace or contentment. But Solomon's not done. So after he goes on for a little bit about being driven by unhealthy comparison, he said, there is another extreme that you have to avoid because... If you look at the world, you realize fools will fold their hands and ruin themselves. So he's really clear with these two verses. He's not against working hard. He's not against doing our best. Solomon himself built more buildings, accumulated more wealth, accumulated more livestock than any king in Israel before or after him. He's not saying it's a a foolish thing to work hard. It's just foolish to compare ourselves. But on the other extreme, you're a fool if you just fold your hands and wait for the world to collapse around you. 
Solomon isn't endorsing half-hearted effort, and neither is he endorsing comparison. You can't give up when things get hard. That's not his point. You don't give up when things don't go your way. Solomon is simply advocating for this healthy middle ground where we're not being lazy and we're not chasing the wind. That middle ground isn't found by being passive. It's not about doing less than our best. That middle ground is not, by the same token, found by stressing ourselves out, trying to be something or someone that God has not created us to be. And then Solomon anchors this image of what happens in the human heart when we get into this unhealthy comparison. I love what he says here. I hope this is what burns in our mind. Solomon says, it's better to have one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Hmm. Tranquility is an old word. We don't use it much anymore. Essentially, it means contentment, satisfaction, peace. It's better to have one handful of satisfaction and peace than it is to be chasing, manufacturing, photoshopping our life. Tranquility is a place where we know we've done our very best. And when that happens, we can lay our head on the pillow at night and sleep soundly. We gave our best. We left it all on the field. Solomon's deepest point here, though, is this. Less is more when it leads to peace. Less is better than grasping and striving and pretending. Solomon is clearly challenging us to think deeply about our lives. There's a huge difference between someone else's success inspiring us to do great things, and beating ourselves up because we're not where they are. If comparison makes us feel worthless and demoralized, if it leaves us full of envy and jealousy, then we've moved from comparison to envy itself, and we're in an unhealthy place. I think it's honestly, it's harder today than it's ever been to avoid this idea of comparing our lives to someone else. Social media is fantastic. I'm not saying social media is bad, but I'm saying it can have an unhealthy influence on us. Social media encourages us to post cleaned up posts, sanitized versions of our life. Only our best days, not our worst. Only our successes, not our struggles. Because we'll post about a great day with our family, but we won't post about the argument we had the night before right? I'm not advocating that we post all the gritty details of our life on social media, because you and I both know when we have friends on Facebook that do that, we unfollow them for 30 days just to see if they can clean their toxicity up. And eventually, we unfollow them and unfriend them. So I'm not advocating we post every struggle on social media. That's not appropriate either. But I just want us to realize how dangerous it is, how damaging it is to compare the raw reality of our own worlds with a life on social media that's been highly fictionalized, sanitized, and touched up. I've come to the place, Connie and I were talking about this the other day, I'm just taking a break from social media for 30 days. I'm not quitting it. I'm not saying you should 
No, I'm just taking a break. Because some of it's gotten toxic. And I'm just going to leave it alone for a while. And see what happens to the peace and the contentment that's in my heart. Here's the thing we have to wrestle with. Are we enjoying? Are we appreciating? Are we grateful for what we already have in this life? Or are we giving up our one handful of tranquility for chasing the wind? Is it possible this morning that we've let comparison get the best of us? That comparison is killing our peace at work, at home, at school. Comparison leaves us stirred up, churning inside when it's healthy, when it's unhealthy. And it's important for us to remember what Solomon said in Proverbs, the very first verse in this talk this morning, where he says, A heart at peace will bring life to your body. But envy, that's just going to rot the bones like cancer. You know, for me, one of the best ways that I've found to fight unhealthy comparison in my life, to keep me centered on what's really true about my life, is to periodically just do a gratitude journal. This is not something I do every day. It's not something I do every week. It's every couple of years. And I want to invite us to do that this morning because I feel like the best antidote for this unhealthy comparing in our lives is to focus on what we've already got and be grateful. So I'm going to ask you to engage in this exercise this morning for a few minutes. We're providing some, some, just some quiet space here for you to do that. And the way it works is you just pull out a piece of paper. You can grab the back of the program where there's some bank, blank space. You can pull out your phone and open an app that gives you a clean page to write. I don't care if it's a Word document or a note or what it is. Just don't go to social media and start posting this today. Okay? It's also an exercise I'm going to ask you to do alone. Don't look over at your spouse, your friend. Don't look at the people around you and compare your list to theirs. That's not helpful. Just find some space and start writing down the things that you're grateful for. No judgment. What are you grateful for today? So before we start, I want us to just take a deep breath. Okay? Let's do this with me. Just breathe in deep and breathe out. Just relax. Let go of whatever you were thinking about that you have to do this afternoon, work next week. Let all of that go. And in this moment, focus in on what you've got that you're grateful for. It might be an opportunity that comes your way. It may be a gift you've been given over the Christmas season. It could be some aspect of God's creation, the oceans, the mountains. It may be the people in your life that you're grateful for. Whatever it is, that comes to mind, write it down. And the goal here is to try to come up with 10 things. If you come up with 10, move to 20. It's not a competition, but just keep thinking, what is it, God, that I need to be grateful for? So I'll give you a few minutes to do that right now.
So I hope that you're well on your way to creating just a heartwarming list of things you're grateful for. I went back and reviewed a list from a few months ago that I'd created this week. There's some wonderful things on it. I'm grateful most of all for God's grace. That's a given. I'm grateful for my 15-month-old grandson's laughter. I'm grateful for fresh fallen snow in December. Not so much in January and February. I'm grateful for long naps by the fireplace, for the smell of spring rain, for second chances. I'm grateful for Christmas morning and the joy that's there. I'm grateful for warm towels and slow mornings. I would encourage you to keep this list with you. It may be best to put it into some electronic device, a tablet, a smartphone, computer, so that you have it with you at all times. And when something comes to your mind this week, just add to this list. Try to find a hundred things that you're grateful for. We need this exercise. We need to focus on gratitude as the antidote for the comparison that's so rampant in our society. And in spite of our best efforts, comparison will sink in. And when it does, pull out your list. Review it. Gratitude clarifies our focus. It breaks through our feelings of insecurity and envy. Gratitude draws our focus then to how much we already have rather than what we don't. It drowns our urge to compare our life, our work, our family, our home. Gratitude helps us celebrate other people's accomplishments and truly be inspired by their life instead of being envious. And when we do this work of quit comparing in being grateful, our hearts will be filled with the peace that Solomon describes in Proverbs. A peace, he says, that will bring life to our weary bones.